Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo, dropping another episode this week to talk about the passing of Charles Grodin, and particularly to revisit Midnight Run, which I had occasion to rescreen a couple nights ago, and which stands as just a classic of its era, one of the most perfectly constructed movies I've seen in a long time, and a brilliant showcase for the talents of Charles Grodin. The improvisatory, if that's a word, talents of Grodin. There's a couple of key scenes where uh, in the making of materials, you can read that Grodin himself came up with just some absolutely brilliant ad-libs to crack a tough nut like De Niro. So I wanted to first start by just kind of giving a brief sketch of Grodin's career itself because it spanned so many decades. And I think if you are a child of the 70s and the 80s, as I am, you know, he's just someone who's always been around, both in films and on TV. I think I probably first became aware of him through his brilliant appearances on The David Letterman Show going back, gosh, it's got to be into the 80s. But Grodin as an actor is such a distinct, interesting, weird kind of screen presence. You know, you'll read in a bunch of maybe perhaps lazy obits the term cranky. I saw one, one write-up that sort of I think got it so wrong. It 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 claimed that Grodin, you know, did an appearance uh, for some film that he had been had been in, and and that his entire interview was a litany of uh, complaints where he himself was the victim. It just occurred to me that this person writing this article had never witnessed Charles Grodin do the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson or appear on the Letterman Show. Because the whole gag that he used to do on those shows and when doing publicity for his films was to pretend to be aggrieved. That was the bit. It seemed that this writer missed that entirely and was kind of crankily himself giving Grodin a hard time for supposedly being cranky. So Grodin got started in the 60s on TV. And as I noted on the Instagram account for the podcast, which you can follow, at Full Cast and Crew on Instagram. Uh, his first film role was in Rosemary's Baby in 1968. And Ted Jessup and I did a whole episode about Rosemary's Baby, which is one of my favorites. It's, um, it's a brilliant satire of a film. It often gets tagged, understandably, as a horror film, but it, it's really a very whip-smart send-up of New York City society. And someone had asked the question when I posted a picture, picture of him in Rosemary's Baby. They had asked on Instagram, was he part of the coven of witches? Because he, if you remember, uh, Mia Farrow's character, Rosemary, comes to him in her most dire hour of need with an understandably fantastical story that her entire apartment building and indeed her husband is part of a satanic cabal and that she needs to be rescued. And he, at first, appears to be the only person who takes Rosemary seriously. And he gives her a haven in his office. Now, maybe all of this is coincidence, but one thing is for sure. They have a coven and they want my baby. Certainly seems that way. I was afraid you wouldn't believe me. 
I don't believe in witchcraft, but there are plenty of maniacs and crazy people in this city. But then we come to find out he actually calls her esteemed obstetrician, who is part of the coven, and hands her over from near safety into sure and certain peril. So somebody had said, you know, was he in on it? Uh, do you think he was in on it? Did they make that clear in Rosemary's Baby? It's such an interesting question because to me, it, it gets at the heart of what Grodin was able to portray on screen, even in his very first role back in 1968, which is this dichotomy of intent. You're never quite sure if the seeming politeness and mannered way of speaking is genuine or what is that edge that's just underneath it? Is it too mannered? Is it too polite? Is it too practiced? And I think that's the genius thing that Polanski got out of him right away and that I think he used to great effect throughout the entirety of his career. It's something I've just always appreciated in an actor is kind of that ability to be doing two things at once on screen in a role. And I think oftentimes I read, you know, I want there to be this truth about acting where, yes, there are these two things going on in my mind. I'm, I'm playing the part, but then I'm also playing the subtext. Of course, sometimes then you read actors and they say, no, I'm just reading the lines as they were written. And it's just an embodiment of their personality. And that may be true as well. But either way, that's what a smart director or casting director can read in an actor. I just finished reading this great oral biography of Robert Altman because I'd been doing a little side detour into some of the Altman films that I've been rewatching. And over and over and over again, Altman is a director who would cast almost exclusively on the personality he was meeting in the room. Never because they read particularly well or auditioned particularly well. Certainly never because the studio foisted someone upon him. It was always based on a personality characteristic that he felt the person embodied and that he could put them into the constructed scenario of the film and reliably count on that personality registering what he wanted it to register uh, in the bigger picture. And I think Grodin is a guy kind of like that. You know, when he's playing a straight man, there's always so much going on uh, under the surface. So... You know, after Rosemary's Baby, a lot of people love The Heartbreak Kid, Elaine May. I haven't seen that. Uh, I know it was remade into a pretty terrible Ben Stiller movie, I don't know, five or ten years ago. I haven't seen that. I did see that, unfortunately, but I have to go back and watch that. That's on the list. Uh, Heaven Can Wait, a great Albert Brooks movie, real life, so ahead of its time from 1979. I just watched that a few months ago. The Great Muppet Caper, a lot of people have referenced the fantastic chemistry that Grodin and Miss Piggy had. Those shoes are scuffed. Yes, I know where they are. I'll get them for you in just a minute. Sir. Watch it, Buster. Oh, Mr. Holiday, I'm sorry. Hello. <laughs> Miss, uh, Piggy. Miss Piggy? Right. Of course. Have dinner with me tonight. Oh, can we meet just just for a moment? Just, underwear, just, underwear, just one underwear. brief moment, Miss Piggy. Miss, hmm? Miss Piggy, you're a very different looking woman. 
I'm so tired of the same type. Those tall, thin creatures with the long legs, the, the aquiline noses, the teeth like pearls, soft skin. Yeah, well, I can see where that might make you sick to your stomach. <laughs> Please, now. Which I think is a great observation for the sake of my old po- podcasting partner and friend, Chris Kapiniak, I have to mention Ishtar. I see. Once the people see that God does not work miracles for those who oppose me, but that they are executed as ordinary political prisoners. No, if two Americans die, it has to be unofficially. Congress will have a fit if they find out there's another CIA hit list. How they die is unimportant. As long as their bodies do not disappear, I want no more rumors. And it has to be done by next weekend. I am planning to meet with Gaddafi on Wednesday. He calls me every day. The United States government will not be blackmail. However, I see no difficulty in meeting your timetable. I did stick around to watch Ishtar long enough to see Charles Grodin appear. Long enough to know he's definitely the best and maybe the only watchable part of Ishtar. And after Ishtar, Midnight Run, the film that we're here to discuss. Grodin also then went on to, of course, uh, in a late career renaissance, uh, appear in the Louis C.K. FX show Louis. Of course, the two biggest hits of his career in the way that Hollywood will often do someone. Beethoven and Beethoven 2, starring opposite a dog. Nothing. Let's just call the dog Rover. Mom, please. Come on, MC Ultimate Hammer. Warriors. MC Hammer. Ultimate MC Warriors. Hammer. No, 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 Rover. He doesn't like any of those names. Oh, right. Like, you can really read his mind. Right. Emily, honey, what does the dog want his name to be? You know, this is ridiculous. It's a dog. He doesn't have preferences. You could call him Ding Dong Head. He wouldn't know the difference. Yes, he would. He'll tell us what he wants to be called. in which Grodin turns in probably better work than anyone really has a right to expect from someone starring in a film about a slobbery dog. Perfectly cast as the guy who's annoyed by the dog and then won over. So, long and varied career, born in Pittsburgh, went to the University of Miami, but left uh, prior to graduating to move to New York and studied acting with Uta Hagen at HB Studios. So, the Grodin persona... I think you can start to see emerge most specifically in some of his early and iconic appearances on the Johnny Carson show. He was a frequent guest. His chemistry with Johnny uh, was so good. And I I read somewhere that it kind of began. Let me find the story of this. One of his first bookings, Diana Ross, at the height of her powers, was on the show. And she just performed a medley of her biggest hits. And he was relatively unknown, and he's about to come out and follow Diana Ross. And so he thought to himself quickly, what am I going to do? How how am I going to play this? And he kind of just gave into his instinct to become argumentative, combative. And he felt that that was the the lane to take because if he just went out and kind of did the usual fake talk show bonhomie, uh, it would not go over well to an audience that was still trying to catch its breath from a Diana Ross Greatest Hits medley. Are you aware? I'm the host. You're the guest. Are you I ask aware? the question. You say, wait, are you works. aware? You come out, you sit, I talk, you answer Yeah, but questions. are you aware 
Are you aware that I don't do any of your competition shows? Are you aware of that? Do please, do, please do. <laughs> please. You know, if you I, could have done one of them tonight. If I went on one of those. Paul Rudd kind of brilliantly picked up the baton here and does something similar to this day. I think over about a 15-year period of going on uh, the Conan O'Brien show, he would bring a clip from a 1988 unintentionally funny McDonald's-sponsored E.T. knockoff called Mac and Me, featuring a boy in a wheelchair roaring down a hillside and then falling off the cliff into the river below into his certain death. And regardless of what film Paul Rudd was promoting, he would cue this clip up uh, or he would just cue up a clip, regardless of what the setup was, and then this is the clip that would play. So, in a similar and and be completely straight about it the entire way through. Very very funny. You've been coming on the show for many 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 years, and you do this one thing consistently, which is you say we're going to see a clip, and then I throw to what I think is a clip, and it turns out to be a clip from this terrible ET ripoff. Right. Um, <laughs> called Mac and Me, Mac and, and me. you have done this to me, I think, about 30 times. I know, and I just... But, but I just wanted to bring it up because we're now talking about... You've been in big movies, but this is a Marvel movie. Right. And this is something that's serious. Yes, and that's why I, I feel like... And I'm glad you said it because I have to address it. I can't, obviously, and it kills me, and I feel dumb that I'm not going to be able to show it this time, but... Obviously, Marvel and this whole machine, they get pretty... Uh, upset if you don't so. do that. Yeah, and oh, we didn't want to upset like the nerds and the people, and the, the, the real hardcore nerds. <laughs> the nerds. The hardcore fans. Sorry, nerds. Yeah. <laughs> the hardcore fans that pay my rent. Um, yeah. Nerds. Uh, no, uh, well, I, I didn't want to, we don't want to, uh, whatever, freak them out. Right, so, and, and, we, Or upset them. So this it's is... good that we address. This is you learning from Michael Douglas. From Michael Douglas. Let's take a look. You've learned about the suit, but you've yet to learn about your greatest allies. The ants. Loyal, brave, and your partners on this job. As you can see, I, it doesn't go according to plan. And it's a lot, I have a lot to learn. But Grodin is really the architect of that particular slice of genius. The obliviousness with which the persona is deployed, that's what's so amazing when you're watching any of these moments of Grodin's career, is that he has total command over his physicality and total command over the character that he's playing. And... 
I think the genius of Grodin and the genius of Johnny Carson, who is as adept and improviser as Grodin is and is able to bat the ball back and forth with him, is just that it's it, it's such a great deconstruction of the appearance itself. So you could go down the rabbit hole of looking at all the Grodin, Johnny Carson appearances on YouTube. They're very, very worth it. And then there's Letterman. I mean, a more perfect Letterman guest, it's kind of hard to think. There are many great recurring Letterman guests from the early days, Sandra Bernhardt, Brother Theodore. But Grodin and Letterman, who, you know, Letterman has that similar undercurrent of simmering anger underneath the gap-toothed grin. And so I think that in their mutual sort of mock or real uh, turmoil, inner turmoil, really got sparky, really got great. One of my favorite ones is when after a couple of these kinds of recurring bits uh, with Grodin coming on and doing what he, what he does, uh, Grodin actually went one step further and brought a supporting cast on his appearance. He found this great vaudeville comic and he brought him on as his attorney. Uh, who was present in order to harangue Letterman about comments made about Grodin on a previous episode. Charles, Charles welcome to the uh, show. I understand... You're saying you don't know why I'm here, but you do know why I'm here. What is it? I mean, last week on two separate nights... Yeah. One with Carol Burnett, another with Dabney Coleman. I, I was really libeled on the show. Oh, how so? Well, I mean, certain things were allowed to go out on the air right. that were said about me. You said certain things, and Dabney Coleman said certain things, and they were allowed to go out on the air. But it's it's just a joke, and and, and well, I can't. Are you serious I, I, I about I, this? I don't think it's a joke. You're really yeah, I, actually I, I, serious. Yeah, I don't think it's a joke, and I think uh, when the, when the audience uh, sees uh, the tape of the previous shows, they will see that. Uh, it's not that clearly a joke, and I don't think it is a joke. In fact, I brought with me tonight uh, uh, my attorney, who's, uh, who's going to sit here with me. And uh, so uh, Neil Framens is my attorney, and I'd, I'd like to bring him. Neil? Neil? Uh. Neil, nice to see you. How are you? I, I get it. You boys are here for the clams. Uh, we're not really here for clams. Uh, uh, Neil, is, Neil is the senior partner of Framens and Llewellyn. And, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> this shuffling, uh, unhappy-looking, bald, bespectacled, elderly man enters the set looking already like he doesn't really want to be there. He doesn't really know what's going on. Why don't you show the audience what I saw last Wednesday and Friday right. night? I on have the not show seen the videotape. Oh, well, but you were here when it happened. Yes, so. I was here, but I don't know. Uh, I understand Hal and our producer have put this together, and uh, Chuck uh, will tell us. I guess this is two separate occasions. It's a, a Carol two, Burnett a and Dabney Coleman. This is actually what happened last week All on right. the show. I don't think that this is actionable, but go ahead, Hal. Roll that videotape if you have it. Uh, you know who was here a, a couple of weeks ago, and we had all kind of trouble with him? Who's that? A very nice guy and a, and a man for whom I have the highest regard as, as an actor and, and a, really a decent fellow, uh, Charles Grodin. Chuck, yeah. 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 He is a, quite a friendly person. I understand uh, he doesn't behave that way sometimes. So we have on, trouble with Chuck. On talk shows. Yeah. Uh, and, and we have trouble with him, you know, because he's psychotic. <laughs> Why is this ringing a bell? I should know something Chuck about Chuck Grodin? Oh, that's right. That pain in your ass probably told you about it. He's a very nice man. Oh, God. And I think the two of you... <laughs> 
He's nice if you talk about him, but yeah. if you get off of him for a second, <laughs> boom, boom, he resents it. He takes that personally. But uh, I get the sense that the, the two of you would be a great, a great combination. Well, he thinks so, too. I don't. <laughs> Okay, so... And, and, and not only that, but there was more than that. There was more than that. that so then Letterman cues up uh, the offending bits, which involves Carol, Carol Burnett and, and Dabney Coleman is the other one I forgot to mention. I mean, at this point, you know, Letterman is just having such a good time, which didn't always happen on The Letterman Show. You know, Dave, it took a lot to get Dave engaged and really up to 10. And every time Groden was on, I think he got there. And there's a great little bit in the back end of the clip where... Uh, Groden is going on and on, and his attorney kind of leans over to whisper in his ear in a movie attorney way. What is it? Is the attorney would like a, like a glass of water. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have some water here. Oh, thank you. Thank, yeah. you. thank you very much. Listen, I enjoy your show. <laughs> And it turns out what he wants is a glass of water, and he's extremely solicitous of Letterman. And Groden's just so irritated and annoyed. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I, I, I can't say enough about it. Please go and watch some Charles Groden talk show clips. You will really enjoy it. And of course, Groden himself had a talk show on CNBC for a while. Um, just missed him. I was at MSNBC and CNBC for a time myself in the earlier part of my career, but I just missed the era where Groden would have been around. That would have been incredible. Had I known that, had I been a little bit more aware at the time, I probably would have forced a trade over to that staff. Okay, so that's a little bit about Charles Groden. Let's talk a little bit about Midnight Run, which I watched again the other night. Man, it's such a great movie. so good. It was 1988. This is kind of the time where you have this action genre, buddy picture genre. You have uh, Walter Hill's 48 Hours. You have Lethal Weapon. That's 82 and 87, respectively. And you have Beverly Hills Cop in 84, in the middle there. So the buddy picture is a big deal. The action comedy is a big deal. And Martin Brest, the director actually directed Beverly Hills Cop, and Minette Run was going to be his follow-up with Paramount as the producing studio. And after a bunch of back and forth, it so happened that Robert De Niro, of all people, was looking to do a pure comedy. So De Niro, in his career up to this point, he'd done a couple brief comic-related turns you know, he's, he's funny and mean streets as Johnny Boy, per se. New York, New York, King of Comedy, obviously, is a comedy, quote-unquote, but it's also much darker than that. And his great turn as Harry Tuttle in Brazil, I think, was kind of the first time I remember seeing him in a movie and being kind of surprised and shocked that he had such great comic timing, because he's kind of deployed that way for the first time, even in his cameo in Brazil. But 
at this point in his career, you know, he'd never done this type of a movie. Uh, and these movies were making incredible box office. And so I think De Niro wanted to get away from the heaviness of something like The Untouchables, which was his film just prior to Midnight Run in 1987. And he actually wanted to do Penny Marshall's Big, but the studio went with Tom Hanks instead. So kind of stumbling into Midnight Run was his fallback. And at that point, Paramount Pictures... It's 1988. They decide, great, we've got De Niro, uh, but let's make sure we get an equally big name to play the Mardukas character, the accountant. So I, I guess I can't imagine no one has not seen Midnight Run, but De Niro plays uh, Jack Walsh, who is a former Chicago cop turned Los Angeles bounty hunter, and he chases down and finds a former mob accountant named Mardukas, played by Charles Grodin, and tries to bring him back to Los Angeles before the deadline when the bail bondsman, played brilliantly by Joe Pantoliano, would lose his $500,000 or $400,000 bond that he posted for the Duke, as he's known. Then they're chased by mobsters who want to assassinate the Duke, and by the FBI, headed up brilliantly by... Yafet Kodo, uh, who also passed away this year, as Special Agent Alonzo Mosley. That's kind of the rough setup. And so the studio wanted a big name, and they suggested that Brest and the screenwriter George Gallo, whose screenplay is one of those screenplays that gets referenced if you look around on screenplay forums for, you know, what's an archetypical screenplay? What's a great example of a screenplay that I could read to give me some roadmap for the medium? The Midnight Run screenplay is one of the ones that you'll find referenced a lot. And it's interesting to read because it's kind of overstuffed in a way. Like there's a lot of character-y stuff in it. And it's fascinating to see what they paired out. I think the movie, once Breast completed it, was was way over time. And that's probably because they shot everything in the script, I would imagine. And I think they had to pare that back, which I think they did excellently. Anyway, the studio suggested they change Mardukas's gender so that they could cast Cher uh, and maybe have a little sexual frisson between the two characters. But uh, Martin Brest was not interested in that. So the studio next suggested Robin Williams. Williams was all on board. Uh, I believe he auditioned. It's Martin Brest that had his heart set on Charles Grodin, who was not an A-list actor, but a man who did audition with De Niro, and Brest just had a sense of the chemistry between these two, the differences, the the slow burn. George Gallo, the screenwriter, says that the uh, pairing of the Duke and Walsh was based on his parents, who didn't know how funny they were when they would have these arguments, and that one of them was always on a volcanic 10, and the other one was a very quiet, kind of slow burn counterpart. And I think that's the obvious chemistry that you have when you have De Niro, who at the time, let's remember in 88, audiences are most familiar with him from the big, violent, uh, loud, aggressive roles that he's been known for. And he does a lot of yelling and screaming and angry smoking in Midnight Run. And Grodin's slow burn, 
fucking with De Niro, very subtly repeating things a couple of times, uh, getting the last word in as he does so brilliantly in so many scenes. You know, when we change buses in Chicago, you're going to have a couple hours. I think you would be a better man if you used that time to look up your ex-wife and daughter. It's a perfect opportunity. Brian, why don't you mind your own business? Let me ask you this. Why is it you haven't seen them in nine years? Why? Yeah. Just to get you off my back, I'll tell you why. She married a police lieutenant, and I'm not very popular with the Chicago Police Department, okay? Why aren't you popular with the Chicago Police Department? That's a holiday. What, do we know each other? Get, what did... Why? Why? What did you do? Why aren't you popular with Chicago Police Department? Something that really doesn't concern you. She hurt you, Janet? Yeah. I'm sorry. What are you sorry about? I'm sorry you're hurt. I'm not hurt. You just said you were hurt. I'm not hurt. You just said you were hurt. I didn't say I was hurt. You said I was hurt. I asked you if you were hurt, and you said, yeah, I'm hurt. That's because you you made me say. You're starting to put words in my mouth. Jack, you're a grown man. You have control over your own words. You're goddamn right I do. So here come two words for you. Shut the fuck up. I mean, he just gets De Niro's goat so perfectly. So that's who Brest wanted. And at this point, Paramount, apparently feeling that if they couldn't have two A-list stars, they didn't want to do the movie. They abandoned the film. And... They thought that it had too high of a budget to merit going forward with just De Niro and someone like Grodin. So Universal stepped in and picked up the project, and the Universal Studios benefited from the success of Midnight Run. Let's have a little throwback on the podcast. Audio engineer Matt can finally use the alternative casting intro. Put that one back. There's a lot of names bandied about here. I just wanted to mention some of them. Whether these are true or not, I don't know. But in the making of materials that you can read, you'll you'll hear a lot of these names. So it's worth mentioning then. For Jack Walsh, were Harrison Ford, uh, Mel Gibson, Kurt Russell, Michael Keaton, Richard Gere, Burt Reynolds, Clint Eastwood, Charles Bronson, Gene Hackman, Don Johnson, Tommy Lee Jones, John Travolta, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mickey Rourke, Jeff Bridges, Ryan O'Neill, John Voight, Michael Douglas, Dustin Hoffman, Sylvester Stallone, Al Pacino, Jack Nicholson, all considered for the role of Jack Walsh, played by De Niro. So basically every single actor in Hollywood. I don't know how many of those wanted the role or passed, but those are some of the names mentioned to play Jack Walsh. Be interesting to kind of think of it. How about Bronson opposite Grodin? I think that would have worked. I think I could have seen that. I never thought about it that way. It could be true. To play the role of the Duke, Mardukas, brilliantly played by Charles Grodin in the film, uh, Chevy Chase was considered, ironically. Bill Murray, Steve Martin. You know, you always have to take that stuff with a grain of salt, but, but it was really Martin Brest that kind of went to the mattresses and said, no, yeah, this is the guy. And speaking of casting, I mean, the thing that sticks out to me in addition to how brilliant the chemistry is between the two guys is just the quality of the casting, every single part in this film is so perfectly cast. Yafet Kodo. Hey, Jack Walsh. Excuse me. Are you Jack Walsh? I'm sorry, do I know you? Alonzo Mosley, FBI. Oh, that's a nice badge. How can I get one of those? I want to talk to you, Jack. Yeah? Why don't you call my social secretary? You're very funny. Please. I want to talk to you. Take your hands off. Take it easy. 
You know, it's a ten dollar fine for jaywalking in Los Angeles. Shut up. What I want to know is, are you working on anything having to do with Jonathan Mardukas? Never heard of him. Well, I believe you had heard of him. Let me tell you something, asshole. I've been working on this Jimmy Serrano thing for about six years. Mardukas is my shot. I'm going to bring him into federal court. And I don't want any third-rate rental thug who couldn't cut it as a cop from Chicago bringing him to L.A. on some bullshit local charge. Brilliant John Ashton playing Marvin Dorfler, who is a competing bounty hunter that alternately gets the best of and is gotten the best of by De Niro's character. Dennis Farina, brilliant, as Jimmy Serrano, the gangster. He's got some of the best lines in the movie. Is this moron number one? Put moron number two on the phone. Yeah, Jimmy, he's uh, right here. Hold on. He's pissed. Joey Pants as uh, Eddie Moscone, the bail bondsman. He doesn't like to fly. He doesn't like to fly! What the fuck does that mean? Listen to me, Jack. You gotta be back here in less than two and a half fucking days. A half million dollars of my money! What the fuck is going on there? Terry, why have $500 to Jack Welch in Amarillo, Texas right away? Amarillo, Texas. Now listen also, get Dorfler down here. Find him and get him down there too. You got it, Eddie. Shit! Richard Ferrangi, brilliant Richard Ferrangi as uh, Jimmy Serrano's henchman and Robert Miranda as his partner. These guys are referred to by Serrano as moron number one and moron number two. Brilliant Jack Kehoe as the slimy, sleazy Jerry Geisler, the traitorous employee of Eddie Moscone's bail bonds shop who is ratting out every step of De Niro's plan to Jimmy Serrano uh, and playing both sides against the middle, it just delivers a perfectly smarmy, sleazy uh, role here. And the way he suggests going out for donuts is so fraught and laden with great subtext. Philip Baker Hall plays Sidney, who's an advisor to Jimmy Serrano. Uh, He's got just a few scenes, but really key. And just everyone. I mean, what's amazing about it is I think a lot of times when you have great character actors in a film, any film really, like there's a sense in Midnight Run that everybody's in the same movie. And what I mean by that is it's not as if all the characters talk like the screenwriter, which can happen sometimes. You know, the character actors are allowed in this movie to bring some of their themselves to the role, but the tone of their performance, the way their performance is pitched is heightened and theatrical in this in the sense that it meets kind of the comic tone of the film and so what happens is nobody's kind of in their own movie everybody feels of a piece even though they're doing their thing Yafet Koto particularly you know his slow burn he's doing kind of similar thing to what Grodin does except he's playing it much straighter and much angrier because he's frequently aggrieved and annoyed as, quote-unquote, the most powerful person in the movie since he represents the federal government. Two or three stops ago. His real name's Mosley. I'm Mosley! But the fun had at his expense is some of the best fun to be had in the entire movie. And the grudging kind of respect between him and Jack Walsh uh, as a former cop is one of the great pleasures as the movie kind of reaches its conclusion towards the end. This movie has so many iconic lines. When I was posting or mentioning that I was watching this, I, don't, I can't count how many people said, Serrano's got the discs. Serrano's got the discs. Like, why is that a 
of all the brilliant lines in this movie, that seems to be one that everybody remembers. I remember that. I don't know why. Why do we remember that? I guess because it's such a great uh, unexpected kind of twist at the end that the plot kind of goes awry, but then still works out. Swan's got the discs. Let him go, Jack. Swan's got the discs. Did he or did he not take the discs? I couldn't tell. There's too much going on down there. Swan's got the discs. He's got the discs. So you have the action comedy construct, you have these incredible actors, and then the whole movie, the whole capery, tongue-in-cheek, japing, comedic, clever fest that we've been enjoying stops down for like an eight or nine minute extended sequence where stuck in Chicago, out of money, out of transportation, Jack Walsh is forced to show up at his ex-wife's house where she lives with her new husband, who is formerly a lieutenant, now a captain in the Chicago Police Department that Jack had to leave because he wouldn't accept the corruption of Serrano. And he wouldn't go on the payroll. He wouldn't go on Serrano's payroll. And so the mob planted heroin in Jack's home, and he had a whole scandal. And in order to escape, he just had to resign, and it kind of blew up his life and his life with his wife and his daughter. So he hasn't seen his wife and his daughter in nine years, and they're forced to kind of show up on their doorstep, hat in hand, and he needs to borrow money, he needs to borrow a car. I can't believe this. I haven't seen either of them in nine years, and the first thing out of my mouth is going to be, can I borrow a few hundred bucks? I have a feeling this is going to be very good for you. Now, this scene by now is so well-known that I think we just accept that it's kind of part of this film. But I want to take a moment just to acknowledge back in the day when this film came out, you know, to stop down in a movie like this and have this very naturalistic scene played for real emotion. You know, it, it is not a tongue-in-cheek scene. The actors portraying Jack's ex-wife, Wendy Phillips, plays Gail. And Danielle Duclos, I think that's how you sound. Danielle Duclos plays Denise, his daughter. And with De Niro and Wendy Phillips and Danielle, it is so touching and so well handled. It's real. Uh, you have these, in Jack and his ex-wife, you can tell that the pitch of the scene, you know, the way it's directed, the way it's written, the way it's played by the actors, was aiming for something a little subtler than sort of just ex-wife you know, ex-husband, ex-wife who hate each other and battle. Like that's kind of the lazy, easy way out of the scene. But the way that it's played, written and directed is that you can feel the love that was there. You can feel that these two were right for each other and that you can also feel that that remains the case. But you can also feel as another layer that she has moved on and is in good hands perhaps with her new husband and the new life that they have. I'm your mother's ex-husband. Nice kid.
Hi, Gail. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing good. Hi. They mentioned you and him on the news this morning. They did? Yeah. What'd they say? Anything good? <laughs> no. Are you all right? Yeah. You're in a lot of trouble, Jack. Can I come in for a few minutes, Gail? Can I come in for a few minutes? Yeah. You know, and what you know of Jack, I mean, he's kind of been scarred by what happened and his being chewed up and spit out by the very system he was trying to serve and protect has has had an effect on his personality. And he's a bit imbalanced, unstable, angry, and reactive. So all of these things are going on in this scene at the same time. And the way that Wendy Phillips just opens the door and sees Jack is heartbreaking and brilliant. And the way De Niro is with her is also heartbreaking and brilliant. And just when it couldn't get any more heartbreaking or any more brilliant, Daniel Duclos just makes one of the great entrances in a movie of its era, where the argument between Denis, uh, between Gail and Jack is escalating into a shouting match, and she enters the room. I won't stay long. I just need to borrow some money to get to LA. You know I'm good for it. Jack, I don't think I have that kind of cash in the house. Well, I'm so embarrassed. I, I, I'm just in a jam, Gail. I, you look beautiful. You don't look much like a criminal. I'm a white-collar criminal. Jason, go upstairs now. Jack, you shouldn't be here. If Ted comes home, he's going to arrest you and him. Arrest us? Yeah. <laughs> well, then we'd really be in a lot of trouble because I'm afraid I'm a little short of bribe money. All right, Jack, don't start. Please, don't. How is Lieutenant whatever his name is? It's Captain now. Oh. Captain, royalty. Jack, I don't want any trouble. Do you understand that, please? It is not a good day for this. I mean it. Well, I'm sorry that my fugitive timetable doesn't coincide with your social calendar. I don't think she was saying that. Stay out of this, Jack. All right, same old Jack. You get your feelings hurt, and then you just walk around and hurt everybody else. This thing I need now is one of your lectures. I'm not lecturing you, stupid. I'm trying to protect you. Oh, come on. Ted is going to be home any minute. We're all going out. It's an important night for us. Important night? What's so important about tonight? Wait, let me guess. What's it, payoff night? All right, that's it. Get out. Get out. Listen, I'm in a big fucking jam. I just need to borrow some money so I can get this guy back to L.A., and I'm out of this miserable fucking business forever. Can't you understand that? Hi. Denise? so big and just De Niro does a couple double takes and goes and kind of awkwardly hugs her and again you know so many things are being played by Daniel Duclos without really having any lines in this scene she has a couple of lines about how old she is but she's not angry at Jack She's interested. She's curious. She misses him. 
she's enraptured by him and he by her. And Wendy Phillips also conveys this moment of allowing this moment to happen between the father and the daughter. And it's so well played. I mean, this is just such a, a brilliant and iconic scene. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna go now, I'm sorry. No, hold on. I'm sorry, honey, I just, we're having a... What grade are you in now? Eighth. Are you in the eighth grade? That, but these are the keys to my car. It's the station wagon in the driveway. I'll tell Ted that it's in the shop. Okay. And we'll worry about it when you get back to L.A. So, uh, does he take good care of you? Hmm. Yeah? That's all I wanted to know. So what's he going to say about this? He'll understand. Uh, yeah, it's, it's love, you know. Bye, honey. And it does serve a purpose in the plot of the film because famously after this scene, uh, when they are going back into the car, because she gives him the keys to her station wagon, and then Denise comes out with her babysitting money and tries to give it to Jack Walsh and he won't take it. Wait. Isn't much. About $180 babysitting money. Oh, sweetheart, I can't. I can't. Please. I Take can't, it. I can't, sweetheart. Before that, he was putting the Duke back in the car, and De Niro picks up uh, Grodin's trench coat and kind of gently places it in the car so that it doesn't get caught in the door. And it's this scene has has allowed this character to turn a corner that he needs to turn for the film to end up where it's going to go. It's not just a scene drop down because, hey, we've got amazing actors, let's show what we can do. It, it actually has a point and a purpose, but every time I watch it, I think it's for me the high point of the film and I'm just I'm just amazed at the delicacy with which it was directed. I'm getting goosebumps just watching the scene. It, you're going to have to look it up. Please google it because it's not the dialogue, it's the eye contact, the lack of eye contact, it's the framing, it's the way Grodin is standing in the scene when when Jack sees Jack and the daughter see each other for the first time, Wendy Phillips kind of starts to cry even though she's not 
turned to the camera. She she kind of uses her hand to cover her mouth. And you can tell that it's the emotion of knowing that this daughter has probably missed her father for nine years. And it is such a brilliantly constructed, edited, handled scene. I'm just blown away by it every time I see it. It's so good. De Niro's awkwardness of response, are you in the eighth grade? It, it couldn't be any more perfect. Now, it must be said, Martin Brest, I guess, from what I can gather and read, was a director who liked to do a lot of takes. Um, not every actor, I guess, appreciates that. Yafet Kodo particularly did not have a good time on the making of this movie. He gave a couple interviews where he's a little bit frank, a little more frank than I think maybe he would have wanted to be in retrospect about working with hair director, as he referred to him in sort of a Germanic sternness of tone. He said that uh, Martin Brest over the course of the film lost like 40 pounds. And even Brest himself says that when he's directing a movie, he tends to get incredibly obsessive. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't eat. He exists entirely within the framework of the film and the relationships on screen. And Brest is kind of, has been forthright about, I guess, acknowledging that that's a difficult process for him and everyone else. Famously, he hasn't directed a film since he directed Gili with Benefer in what, 2002? Was that when that was? Yeah, 2003. Hasn't directed since then. You know, Martin Brest only made in terms of sort of, you know, big movies. He made Going in Style, which is a, you know, old folks bank robber movie. He made Beverly Hills Cop in 1984. He did Midnight Run in 88, Scent of a Woman in 92, Meet Joe Black in 98, and Gigli in 2003. And he hasn't made a movie since then. Now, I guess it's a truism in Hollywood. You know, if you have a bomb of the sort of Gigli, a $75 million bomb, studios probably aren't going to hand you the keys to uh, the castle after that. But particularly after 2003, as we know, Hollywood's changing. You know, we're getting into the era of big budget movies and the need for an assurance of tone and return on investment. So whether Martin Brest's uh, approach towards making movies just burned him out or whether having a bomb of the sort of Gigli just meant that Nobody was really going to trust him again with 75 or 100 or $200 million to make a film as budgets increased. I'm not really sure. He hasn't spoken a lot. I haven't been able to find any interviews with him uh, since then. So I don't really know what occurred in his career, but that's where it, where it ended. But he did encourage and push improvisation upon De Niro and Grodin because he knew that the relationship between the two – uh, would shine in those moments when he could get them sparking off of each other. So the, there's a scene where Mardukas and Walsh are uh, hop a boxcar and they're riding a train to Los Angeles. And in the boxcar scene, it's one of the moments where Brest took Grodin aside and said, whatever you do, you need to throw a line at De Niro that's going to just make him crack up. You have to crack the facade. It's not really in the script, but just you know, come up with something. So Grodin went away and came up with like 10 lines and he would toss these lines at De Niro and attempt to crack him up. But he never was able to. 
And he just wasn't kind of going as far as Brest wanted him to go. So Brest took him aside again and said, look, this is not working. I mean, you really need to say something shocking. And that's when Grodin came back and on the next take said this. Did you ever have sex with an animal, Jack? Remember those chickens around the Indian reservation? There's some good looking chickens there, Jack. You know, between us. Yeah, a couple there might have taken a shot at. <laughs> What's with you in that watch? What is it with the watch? You told me when you get to know me better, you told me about your, your feelings for chickens. I mean, how, how private could the watch be? What's the big secret? And it's great to watch the clip because you can see on De Niro's face, the, sh the shock and the surprise is real. And that's what Brest was going for. He got it. Now, Gail bought me this watch. She gave it to me. It was the first thing she ever gave me. She, uh, she, she bought it because I was always late, at least a half an hour. So she bought it and set it ahead a half an hour so I'd never be late. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I keep thinking we're going to wind up together again. I don't know why. I'm still hanging on. I'm still waiting around. I don't think she's coming back. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. Sometimes you just have to let go. Just get yourself a new watch. You're okay, Jack. I think under different circumstances, you and I probably still would have hated each other. <laughs> <laughs> we probably could have been friends. In the next life. Yeah, the next life. Midnight Run came out. Was it a hit? It was released on July 20th, 1988, and it made $5 million in its opening weekend. And it went on to make $38 million in North America and $43 million in the rest of the world for a worldwide total of $81.6 million. Is that a hit? I don't think it was regarded as a massive hit. I know that De Niro toyed with the idea of doing Midnight Run 2, and I think there were some unfortunate TV iterations uh, that happened after the fact, which I haven't seen. In 1994, there was a made-for-TV movie called Another Midnight Run in which Christopher McDonald and Jeffrey Tambor stepped in to play not the Mardukas character, but I guess the Mardukas-esque character in the setup. Doesn't look like anybody else from the original was on hand. A different Marvin Dorfler a different Jerry Geisler, Dan Hedaya as Eddie Moscone. That's pretty good. I'm a big Dan Hedaya fan. So that was a hour and a half Universal Television uh, made-for-TV movie. Probably forgettable. Directed by James Frawley. Not a terrible director. Did the first Muppet movie. 
other great examples of what I have to assume are Grodin improvisations. And if these are actually in the George Gallo script, I apologize to George Gallo because his screenplay is great enough to probably contain weird stuff like this, but all the food-related stuff. Are you familiar with a dish, uh, of a potato dish, a uh, Leonese potato? It's a, uh, it's a kind of a fried potato, but it's got like an onion in it. It's, it's quite delicious. It, uh, it really goes beautifully with uh, steak, uh, chops, uh, you know, hamburger, cheeseburger, any of your, your meat dishes. It's just, uh, you know, I have, I have enough money to buy you hey, look. as much Leonese potatoes just, as you ever Just shut the fuck would, up, will you, please? His extended monologue about Leonese potatoes. <laughs> when they have no money and they're in a diner, how much is the coffee? How much is the coffee? It's 53 cents. How much is tea? 53 cents. I'll have the tea. I mean, it's so good. The chorizo, chorizo and eggs, as he purposely mispronounces it in the diner. Okay, and our breakfast special today is chorizo and eggs. Chorizo and eggs? Chorizo and chorizo. eggs. Yes. What is that? It's a Mexican sausage mixed in with scrambled eggs, and it comes with hash browns and toast. I won't be having that. Thank you. What time you got? All right, in 10 minutes, we'll be at the Western Union office. We'll have 500 bucks. I'll buy you a nice juicy steak or whatever you want, okay? Three salt eggs. Huh? Three salt eggs. I'll get you whatever you want. All the food stuff is fantastic. Also, Grodin's physicality, like when they're on the plane in the famous scene where he throws a fit pretending not to be, uh, pretending to be afraid to fly. The way he portrays that with his arm gesticulations is so brilliant. <laughs> and then later on when he hijacks a plane, he just he's the master of knowing how to give a sly, subtle glance at the camera. He knows how that's going to read. Uh, it's what my friend uh, Buck and I would call the subtle face game. He's the master of the subtle face game. That's such a big part of his comedy. So celebrate Charles Grodin. Rewatch Midnight Run. Uh, you'll love it. I would say watch it with your kids. It's got a lot of foul language, but what the hell? Let them appreciate the comedic genius and the emotional realness of the familial reunion scene, which is reason enough to watch the film. You can watch that scene in its entirety on YouTube if you don't want to watch the whole movie, but watch the movie again. It's such a great testament to the gifts that Charles Grodin had for so long. Oh, and I also want to mention particularly the brilliant score by Danny Elfman. Unlike a lot of scores of its time, it's not this like churning, propulsive, 80s keyboard, gated, reverb, drum kind of action score. It's this kind of bluesy, swampy slide guitar thing. And it just works so well. It's such an intrinsic part of the film. It's a real pairing of a soundtrack that is actually right for the film. It's not just the composer doing what the composer does. It's not a typical, quote unquote, Danny Elfman score. It's one of the highlights of the film as well. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. Anyway, that's enough for me. Thanks very much. I hope to be back soon with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Get in touch. We'll be back soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Take care. See you in the next life. See you in the next life.